Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talker Radio. Some people just never learn, do they? After what can only be described as a nationwide revolt against the BBC and its ludicrous attempts to hijack last night of the problems with the aid of a Finnish conductor who objects to patriotic behaviour in another country and a collection of the woke, there are still some recalcitrant middle-class refuseniks who still don't get it. Chief amongst them is David Bedil, a man who hasn't been funny since the last century who seems to think it's appropriate to slag off anyone who likes the sound of rural Britannia. The lesser half of Skinner and Badil now thinks it's a great idea to use the C word on social media to describe the people who see the rousing song as an anthem. Perhaps the next time he whines on about discrimination and anti-Semitism on the radio, we should give him a wide berth. Next up is a woman who goes by the name of Cat Lewis, a self-confessed Christian who is the executive producer of Songs of Praise, a BBC production. She saw fit to tweet out yesterday that singing along with the lyrics of Rural Britannia was akin to neo-Nazis singing about gas chambers. Really? She then followed up with an entreaty for someone to change the lyrics to the song sponsored by the BBC. I'd like to know how much of our money these two pompous poltroons have stolen from us over the last few decades while working for the British Broadcasting Corporation. They are a disgrace to this country. Indeed they are now, and I don't say this lightly, enemies of the people. Mark Dolan put it very well when he said, here's where we are right now, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, The BBC basically hates Britain. And I think that's where we are. And I think it's an absolute, absolute disgrace. 0344 499 Coming up later on, we'll be continuing our free speech conversation with historian and archaeologist Neil Oliver. Scotland remains in peril thanks to the new laws regarding hate speech and every sensible person is campaigning against it. Plus, we'll be tackling why we are one of the laziest nations in the world and what on earth you should be expected to do as a parent when the schools finally reopen next month to mask or not to mask. Yesterday, uh, we lost one of the leaders of Ofqual, probably quite rightly, who decided it might be quite a good idea to resign uh, after really being in charge of one of the biggest fiascos uh, I think the world has ever seen. 0344 499 1000. We're kicking things off with John Rental this morning as well, uh, Chief Political uh, Correspondent for The Independent. We'll find out precisely what he has to say about all of the machinations of Downing Street right now. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It can only be, of course, Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Well, I have to say, uh, when we thought uh, it would be a good idea to talk to John Rental, um, I suddenly thought to myself, actually, there's not much politics to talk about because there really isn't any politics going on. All we've got uh, is the sort of, you know, vague warning that uh, they'll all be back in Downing Street and they'll all be back in Parliament quite soon. Uh, Prime Minister's questions will be upon us before you know it uh, next month. We're going to be having all sorts of conversations about schools going back as well and whether children should wear masks, where they should wear them, when they should wear them, if they should wear them, if they can get away with not wearing them, can they? 
But basically, the big story seems to be uh, the culture wars with the BBC. John, a very good morning to you. Welcome. <laughs> good morning, I Mike. mean, forgive me for sounding slightly negative, but uh, but I don't know what politics we can talk about this morning because there really isn't any, is there? Well, no, that is politics, though, isn't it? I mean, the fact <laughs> that the Prime Minister has waded into the... Uh, to the ridiculous fuss about uh, the last night of the proms uh, suggests that that is a political story. So, yes. uh, and, you know, I mean, everybody goes on about the culture war and all that, but I mean, it, it's, it's a bit simpler than that, isn't it? I mean, he's just trying to align with public opinion on that, which is, uh, I think YouGov did a, one of those instant polls uh, yesterday, which suggested that most people uh, think that it's wrong for the BBC to drop the lyrics of, uh, of, of these favourite songs that most people don't know anyway. Yes, exactly right. I mean, I must say, I've done a rousing version of a Land of Hope and Glory at the end of our Plank of the Week show yesterday, which we filmed downstairs, um, and it's already got 30,000 views, and people are saying, no, don't give up the day job, you haven't got a very good voice. <laughs> well, that's all very well, but I am also waving a union flag, um, and people don't quite... Sometimes I, I begin to wonder and worry, John, that people don't always see the irony of the things that I do, that they actually think that I'm doing them because I'm some kind of jackbooted fascist uh, when in fact what I'm doing is kind of pointing the finger at those like David Baddiel, who thinks it's a great idea uh, to call people who like the song the C-word. Never never try to do irony in public, uh, Mike. <laughs> it's an iron law. Yeah. Um, the only person to do it, actually, is uh, David Aronovich, who can write a whole ironic column for the Times and uh, get away with it. Everyone, everyone recognises. Well, it's funny. It's funny you should mention David Aronovich because David Aronovich and I have a rather curious relationship on Twitter. Uh, in an, in an, uh, he uh, appears to think of himself as some kind of gadfly uh, who occasionally lands on me and sort of tries to make me look idiotic, but in the end always has to retreat because my final <laughs> word to him is always, "Well, you can always cover the show tomorrow, David, and uh, you can talk about it with me on the radio." Uh, to which he always says, "I'm." I'm very busy in the morning <laughs> well there you go so you know he's not as clever as he thinks he is no well uh yeah this is this is the problem um i mean i tried to be ironic on on, on twitter <laughs> they say saying that i was never you know that thank goodness there's no need to ever to go on about jeremy corbyn ever again right and then i went then obviously i went on about jeremy corbyn right of course. uh this this uh, an awful lot of jeremy corbyn supporters thought they'd caught me out. They mm. said, you know, tweeting at me saying, my goodness, you're still going on about Jeremy Corbyn. Right. And you said you weren't going to. Uh, still, <laughs> I'll, I'll try, yes. try not to. Try not to be ironic on Twitter. Try not, again. try not to be. Yeah, but I mean, there is a certain irony, is there not, in the BBC's uh, mind, where you know here they are supposedly examining themselves, while at the same time making a complete hash of it. So I mean, I think they're sort of hitting peak irony. And when the when the executive producer of Songs of Praise comes out as a Christian to say that singing Rule Britannia is akin to Nazis <laughs> singing about the gas chambers, you wonder whether this is all a parody, don't you? Yes, you couldn't make it up. I yeah. mean. It, it's uh, it's Robert Conquest's second law, I think, that all all organisations uh, appear to be controlled by a cabal of their enemies. Yes. Uh, <laughs> clearly, the woman who is the edit, editor of uh, Songs of Praise is actually working for the other side. I mean, right. I don't know who the she other must be. is. Yeah. Well, well, it maybe Rupert the devil. Murdoch. The devil, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would be peak irony, wouldn't it? You know, Songs of Praise is now produced by somebody who actually uh, is a devil worshipper uh, and who and worships at the altar of Lucifer on every Saturday night. You know, tremendous. 
But, you know, listen, let's talk a little bit about Boris Johnson because it hasn't been a great week for him either. He was kind of outed by the Daily Mail, uh, which I think you and I talked about last week as being on holiday uh, in some horrendous way. He had to leave the holiday spot that he was in. But I don't think anyone looking at that picture of him with the baby in the papoose thought that he was enjoying himself. Oh, no, I thought he was uh, I thought he was enjoying himself. He was in Scotland, after all, which is a wonderful... The land, wonderful of, the, the land of the midge. <laughs> I mean, he wasn't he was he wasn't wearing that baby um, papoose thing. Right. I don't think I don't think but... any I don't think anyone can ever wear one of those things. Right. It always looks wrong, doesn't it? Oh, we seem to be losing John's signal. We'll try and uh, make sure that we get it back. One of the things we will talk about uh, is uh, how the, the backtracking has now happened once again because we've seen Nicola Sturgeon in Scotland basically talking about uh, making people wear masks in schools, not necessarily in all parts of the school, uh, but in parts of the school which involve sort of common areas and commonality. Um, because um, having said that they would not do that, in fact, Alok Sharma only yesterday, I think, was on Julie Hartley Brewer's show saying that they would not be U-turning on this as far as they were concerned uh, then very swiftly after Nicola Sturgeon came out they ended up U-turning on it which wasn't very helpful really um, so we'll find out from John what he makes about that uh, we'll also talk of course uh, about what is likely to be happening in the coming few weeks as far as um, Prime Minister's questions is concerned because they will be coming back a little bit earlier uh, than normal I think over the course of the next couple of weeks um, and there'll be certainly uh, pressure coming and we'll be, we'll be talking to hopefully Lee Anderson in fact on Friday uh, who's an MP uh, from the north of England who we've spoken to in the past he's one of those who's trying to put pressure on Boris Johnson to change the law on asylum seekers so that we can actually get some form of um, closure on how many people are allowed into this country, how they get here, and what they do when they do get here. Let's go. I think we've got John Rental back. John, sorry about that. I think we had a little bit of trouble with your signal there for a moment. Yeah, it's it's probably it's probably my signal. Who knows? Who can um, say? Anyway, could be the Chinese. Well, what I was going to say was let's talk a little bit about the Nicola Sturgeon effect once more because um, it would seem, I think Alok Sharma was only on Julia Hartley Brewer's show yesterday saying we won't be U-turning on this mask issue in schools. And then lo and behold, you know, come 12 o'clock, Nicola Sturgeon comes out and says, right, we're going to make people wear masks in schools. Suddenly, this government does another U-turn. Yeah, no, no, it's not. It's not a Nicola Sturgeon effect at all. I mean, that's that's just an accidental uh, optical illusion. It's um, it, it's a public opinion effect. Um, I mean, the point is the the great British public uh, supports uh, children being uh, required to wear masks in schools, and therefore that is the government's policy. Um, I mean, I've, I've I've tried to look for the scientific evidence that supports this uh, mm. change in policy. Scientific evidence that you know masks in schools make uh, make any difference, mm. uh, and and I found it because the scientific evidence is the YouGov poll yesterday saying that uh, the public opinion wants it and therefore that is what the government right. will do i mean i was told it was the world health organization who four days ago changed their advice uh, and said that basically it's okay if not to wear a mask if you're in a classroom but when you're in the rest of the school you should wear a mask which again i find I, quite difficult to to understand really i don't think that's based on any science no uh, and, uh, and and the world health organization isn't uh, driven by opinion polls so that is a very interesting question as to what has changed that has changed the uh, the, the World Health Organization's advice. I yes. mean, unless they, you know, I mean, presumably they will say, well, we've just thought more deeply about it. And this is this is the conclusion we've come to. But I mean, this is all terribly marginal stuff, in my view. Um, you know, masks, I mean, there was never any really very good evidence for for mask wearing. No, it's just that 
countries, uh, you know, like South Korea uh, and Japan tend to wear masks and they've, and they've actually had a fairly good coronavirus experience and therefore um, people sort of assume that there's a connection there. But I mean, I'm yeah, not but sure I mean, except, except for the fact that, you know, in Asia, where uh, all of these major kind of pandemics seem to begin, they wear masks all the time. Which tells you that what's the point of wearing masks? Because, I mean, you know, the coronavirus came out of Wuhan. SARS came out of China. You know, I mean, every single terrible, deadly, you know, uh, Asian flu, all these terrible diseases have all come from places where people wear masks all the time. You know, and you begin to say to yourself, well, what's the point then? Yeah, but the reason they wear masks is because they have all these, uh, they have an experience of these uh, these contagious diseases. Mm. Uh, I mean, it doesn't mean that the masks are, are, are effective. Uh, and I still, I still can't find the uh, the, the, the scientific evidence that uh, that uh, suggests that. Although, no. I mean, the, you know, there is some there is some evidence, but it hasn't changed recently. I, th- so I only- think it's more about sort of you know wear a mask because some people want you to, and therefore it will cause uh, more sort of havoc if you don't kind of thing. Because let's face it, look at somewhere like Spain where they've been wearing masks in the street in public in any public place for a very very long time, and they're now battling one of the highest rates of of reinfection of all time. Yes, but I mean, this is this is this just comes down to the question of political leadership, doesn't yeah. it? Because I mean, what does Boris Johnson, does Boris Johnson actually think that masks are effective? And if so, you know, could he publish the evidence? Because I mean, that would persuade people. Yeah. Instead, what you have is the the great British public without without the information is just is just relying on its intuition, mm. which is that you know, the masks must must have some effect, and therefore let's wear them, uh, and therefore the government follows them. Yeah. Uh, that's no, that's no way to run a country. Well, it's not really, is it? I mean, similarly to, to my rather sort of uh, dismay last week when I could have gone to Portugal on a holiday with my family, but I didn't go on the grounds that I would have to quarantine when I came back, which I didn't really want to do. Um, it then uh, transpired on Thursday uh, when they were nearly ready to come home uh, that the quarantine was lifted. But if you came back on yeah. Friday, you had to quarantine. If you came back on Saturday, you didn't. And you kind of go in, <laughs> well, sorry, I'm sorry, I'm not really following this here. No, but that, that I mean... You've got to accept that sometimes the situation can change. I mean, I'm not sure that quarantine is an effective policy anyway. No. But if it is, if it is based on on the level of infection in the other country, uh, and then the and then the numbers change, then obviously the policy changes, and the policy's got to change at some point. No, I get I mean, that. I get that. But what I don't, what I don't get is if you're going to re- re- reduce uh, quarantine and so that you don't now any longer have to quarantine, why does there need to be a deadline for that? Surely you just say, as of yeah. now, you don't have to quarantine. That means. We announce it on Thursday. That means any time now after we've just announced it, when you're flying back, you don't have to quarantine. Rather than saying yeah. you have to quarantine unless you're coming back after 4 a.m. on Saturday. Yeah, well, the, I mean, this is this is the problem that they had with Spain, wasn't it? They just they just announced it. Uh, yeah, but that was the other and, way round, And that's understandable. Yeah. I understand how you need a deadline if you're putting one on, but not if you're taking it off. No, true. Uh, I mean, but people don't like people don't like not being given notice of these things, and therefore the government seems to do that automatically. Again, seems to be followership rather than leadership, yeah. in my view. I mean, are we now in a situation where they're doing things like uh, announcing uh, sort of rather nonsensical policy about masks in schools because they want to be seen to be doing something, but they don't really know what to do? Uh, well, no, I think I think the point about schools is that the government really can't control what happens in schools, and they felt that you know, head teachers were probably going to insist on masks anyway. Mm. Uh, and therefore, therefore, the government had to catch up and and and, uh, and you know su- suggest that that's the policy. Although, in fact, if you look at the 
the policy the masks have to be worn in corridors only in schools yeah. which are in local lockdown areas right uh, but but what what we know that means is that in in practice it'll be up to it'll be up to head teachers, and there are some you know, there's some head teachers um, who who don't agree with masks and right. think they think they're a bad idea and they think they just encourage children to uh, to to behave badly or to fool around with them and therefore well, make everything is, work. Yeah, well, this is the thing, and also what we still know is that you could have the uh, the infection without showing any symptoms of it, so you could be spreading it anyway. Yeah without anybody knowing yeah. that you're spreading it because nobody knows you've got it. Yes, well, I mean, that's always that's always been true. And that's one of the reasons why people think that wearing masks is an idea because they think, you know, wearing wearing a mask is, is a way of preventing someone without symptoms from, uh, from spreading the disease. But mm. given the prevalence of the disease is so low, uh, it seems to me that, you know, we're wasting an awful lot of time focusing on, on schools, which are not an important um, uh, contributor, I think, to... Uh, to, to the spread and yeah. therefore you know we ought to be concentrating on on everything else yeah. such as the race uh, system yeah well absolutely or indeed the testing system you know why not test everybody all the time which is what they keep saying they want to do but they keep not doing yeah. um and then uh, <laughs> when you say well why don't you test people when you come off a plane oh there's no point in that because uh, the testing isn't the silver bullet well if it's not the silver bullet why do you keep saying that it is the silver bullet well, absolutely. And the point is, we've got far more capacity for testing people than yeah. we're actually. And yet the government still says uh, still says they're not going to test people automatically as they get off the plane, get off the plane. Yeah. I mean, for, for the for good reasons, which is that, you know, there, there are a lot of people who wouldn't be picked up by the tests and would then go on to infect people. But given that, you know, you can't expect the quarantine to be enforced 100 um, percent anyway, I would have thought repeated testing would be more more effective and uh, more likely to, uh, to to achieve the objective, which is just to try and suppress it, not to not yeah. to eliminate. Or well, exactly eliminate. right, because the biggest thing for me and the biggest, I think, challenge for the government is not so much getting back to school, which is which is relatively easy compared with getting back to work. You know, there's a story this morning uh, saying that one of the big American um, uh, financial firms has basically now settled upon the idea that most of their staff only have to come to work half of the week. And the rest of the time they can work from home, you know. So we're looking at what I think now uh, is an almost certain change in the way that working practices are carried out. And the centre of London uh, will remain a ghost town for quite some time to come. They need to sort that out, don't they? Well, I mean, I don't know what uh, what can be done about that. I mean, that is that is a permanent change in in working patterns. Oh, not. I mean, I suspect not permanent. I mean, I suspect it will go back to to what was. Yeah, I'm not sure it will, though. That's the thing. Well, that's what everybody says. Um, and but there was a reason why people worked in offices before. Mm. I mean, it was a more more efficient uh, in the long run. Um, and the point is, obviously, in the short run, an awful lot can be done uh, from home. And some companies will find out that actually that's a that's a better way to run their business. But I mean, I just think I think there's a reason people, you know, people live in cities and, and there's a reason people go out to work in the, in the office, because I think that does tend to be more economically efficient in the end. Well, exactly right. And I think there's also an, a, 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 an aspect of this, and we've talked about this a lot this week on the show, um, an aspect of socialisation, you know, an aspect of, you know, basically people getting more ideas when they're sitting together in a room. I was talking to somebody just the other day in this very building uh, where we do an awful lot of Zoom calls and an awful lot of kind of virtual meetings, you know, and we were saying, you know, there's a lot more that you can say on a virtual meeting than you can when you're actually staring at somebody across a, a table 
because, you know, you feel much more liberated to say whatever you like because the guy's not going to reach over and grab you uh, if you start giving him a hard time, you know. So, I mean, there's a different dynamic if you're not actually all in the same office. Yeah, there is. But, I mean, I think I, I think a real meeting of people in a room actually does tend to produce uh, better ideas. Yes. And I think it's better, better human interaction. No, I agree. You can, you can interrupt, you can, you can read people's... Uh, expressions right. and their and body language much better. Yes. Uh, so I think I, I think in the end we will go back to that. But uh, you're right. There, there may be a very long period mm. um, of, uh, of adjustment. Yes. Well, John, listen, as ever, thanks very much indeed. Apologies to anybody who couldn't hear him earlier, but we sorted it out in the end. Chief political correspondent, of course, for the Independent, uh, John Rental there, telling us that, uh, yes, there is a massive problem going on right now in the centre of uh, our cities. Uh, we've got JP Morgan this morning saying that they accept that maybe uh, for the rest of time, all of their workers may only come in half the week. I think that's a massive error, a massive mistake. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now, I mean, let me tell you about another person uh, who is on the uh, enemy of the people list, and that is a woman by the name of Cat Lewis, right? Uh, Catriona Lewis, uh, to give her her full title. Uh, she is apparently the executive producer of Songs of Praise, uh, calls herself a Christian on Twitter, uh, therefore, obviously, is a very forgiving sort of individual. Uh, but she seems a little confused uh, about some of the songs and some of the anthems that we sing. So here's what she said on Twitter. Do those Brits who believe it's OK to sing an 18th century song about never being enslaved, written when the UK was enslaving and killing millions of innocents, also believe it's appropriate for neo-Nazis to shout, we will never be forced into a gas chamber. Hashtag, hashtag rule Britannia. Well, Kat, I've got some news for you, uh, sweetheart. Um, that's not really the sort of thing we expect from the executive producer of Songs of Praise, or indeed a Christian. So you might wish to take a second look at that tweet uh, and possibly uh, refer yourself uh, to the disciplinary committee at the BBC. But let's talk to Rod Little, a man that knows a thing or two about the BBC, journalist, associate editor at The Spectator, uh, formerly of the Today programme. Rod, a very good morning to you. Welcome. Good morning, Mike. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm very well indeed. Slightly shocked, really, that Christians like Cat Lewis would have such terrible thoughts. What a silly woman. I mean, really. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, it, it is, it's remarkable, but, but the trouble is, and the reason she was able to tweet that is that the uh, is that the BBC is a bubble and they all think the same thing. Yeah, that, that's the whole problem with it. Um, and you know, it, it's the same when Emily Maitlis uh, makes her totally unbiased comments yes. at the start of Newsnight or tweets them, uh, because everyone on the programme and because everyone within the BBC thinks the same thing, they, they don't think they're saying anything political at all. They think it's just right. Right. I mean, I was talking to John Rents a little bit earlier on in the show to say that it's rather ironic, is it not, for the BBC to be at the centre of this kind of scrutiny, uh, and they seem to be almost deliberately throwing themselves under the bus. I mean, they're providing they, they more and more ammunition there. for those of us who think that they should be disbanded, that the licence fee should disappear. Yeah. You know, they're just giving us more and more ammunition every day. It's remarkable, isn't it? It is the only known example of someone actually being inside a coffin but able still to hammer more <laughs> nails into it from the inside. Exactly. I mean, it's almost, it's almost as if, as, as he said, it's almost as though their enemies are actually running it from the inside. Yes, that's right. Yes. But again, it is the bubble. They simply don't understand mm. that the rest of the country doesn't agree with them. It doesn't matter that Vera Lynn gets them number one in the charts with, uh, you know, uh, any anthem particularly that would be sung at uh, the proms. Right. They, they don't notice it. They, don't, they, they pay no attention because everyone within that organisation agrees with each other about 
all these woke issues, whether yes. they be singing anthems, whether it be Black Lives Matter, whatever it is, they all agree. And they seem oblivious as well to uh, the bulk of the population who I call the silent majority, who are basically the people that, that you and I kind of address on a, on a regular basis, although we hope to address some, some people who don't necessarily agree with us, because we don't mind having an audience of people that doesn't agree with us. Uh, they seem to hate it, you know? No, they, they, they do. They, they, they loathe the people who pay their licenses. Yeah, uh, yeah. Particularly the elderly. Uh, particularly the yeah, elderly. Yeah, because they're all racists. Yeah, they're all racist, Middle Englanders, uh, but 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 also Middle England. They loathe the values of Middle England, and you kind of hope to. I mean, they they know that they're metrocentric, and they they tried to alter this by by going to Salford and moving certain programmes up to uh, to Manchester. Uh, but all they did really was just shift all their prejudices. You know, 190 miles up the uh, right. M6. Right, uh, but of course. Remarkable. The other thing that I find remarkable is is the sort of complete and utter lack of irony uh, that seems to uh, to not fill the veins of these people. I'm looking at a piece about uh, the Finnish conductor who's believed to have been the start and, and the kind of catalyst of all of this uh, getting yeah. rid of uh, you know getting rid of, of rural Britannia, land of hope and glory. Um, she is understood. Her name is Dahlia, I believe. She's uh, uh, yes. from Finland. See, Dahlia is a big supporter of Black Lives Matter and thinks a ceremony without an audience is the perfect moment to bring change. I mean, I read that and I think it's just been written by a comedian. So what? You, yeah. when you're performing without an audience, you think this is a good time to do something different. Similarly, uh, it would appear that her husband, apparently, is in a pop band uh, who sing a lot of songs about Hitler. Yeah, a metal band, yeah. I think it is, isn't yeah. it? A Finnish metal band. Right. God, I can't wait to hear them. I don't think she's Finnish. Uh, it's, I, I think she's actually from Kiev okay. uh, and moved to Finland at a young age. Oh, right. But, you know, you look at Finland... Um, that's the Finnish national anthem was written by a German in Swedish. Right. So you can understand the Finns not really, uh, uh, Yes, and listen, listen. Without and without wishing to be too jingoistic about things, you know, I did also have a wry smile on my face when I discovered yesterday that the guy running the British Museum now, uh, who is in fact German and uh, wants to get rid of the statue of the guy who actually founded the British Museum on the grounds that he was involved in some kind of horrible slavery uh, back in the day, he's actually from Dresden. Yes, yes. I mean, it's kind of it's kind of irony there as well, isn't there? There, 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 there are so many ironies, and the, the horrible thing is that our institutions are now governed by these people. Right. I mean that that's the, that's a real problem. The the world of the the great mass of the general public has no time whatsoever for this idiocy. Hmm. Nonetheless, the BBC, the British Museum, probably the Arts Council, every every other quango and institution you can you can mention are all governed by people who have these same views. Hmm. It's it's uh, it's pretty bad. It's not quite as bad as it is in America, uh, and you can see what's happening there uh, as a consequence of it. With oh, I know. A, a, a lack of police on the streets and and uh, BLM protesters bullying and beating up people yeah. who don't agree with them. Um, we're headed the same way, I fear. I do worry. I saw David Bedil's tweet this morning as well. I don't know whether you've seen that, uh, where he's basically uh, using the C word to describe anyone who listens to um, uh, Rule Britannia, particularly um, Nigel Farage. And this kind of, you know, absolute petty hatred that Ramona's seem to have for, I mean, it's like, I was talking to Julie Hartley Brewer this morning. You know, it seems to me that there's the same group of people who don't want to go back to school with their kids, don't want to go back to work on the train, 
don't want to leave the European <laughs> Union, also don't uh, want to uh, be allow anybody not to wear a mask, and now they all hate Rule Britannia. I mean, it's literally like some kind of, you know, box. You know, you, you pick your box of tricks and they're all in that box. They are. Uh, it's, they're all on the same side in the culture war. There's no question about that. And I think they're, they're, all, I think they're all insulated from reality. Mm. <laughs> because they're all pretty well off as well. They're all pretty well off, yeah. It's, it's the affluent liberal whiteies, yeah. uh, particularly in London, but also to a degree in Bristol and the centre of our major cities, yeah. who, who are very well paid. Uh, and I suppose because they don't have anything really impinging upon their lives, uh, feel the need to sort of invoke some kind of victimhood for themselves, mm. uh, which is what they do. Um, they drive me up the wall, Mike. I'm I know. Really, but uh, I suppose on the on the plus side, um, the good news for me and you is that your probably readership's going up, our listenership is certainly going up, uh, because there's so many people, the vast majority of people in this country, who are sick to death of it. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, and you need a conjure for people to hear some of the views which which they might sometimes agree with you know yeah. not all the time but but some of the time and it, but, but it's everywhere you know when i come down of a morning and switch on my laptop the first thing i'm faced with is the microsoft news channel yes uh, which is which is all stories from the guardian <laughs> <laughs> you know it's uh, and it makes me want to smash the computer oh, I, know. I, I i read the guardian but i just like a variation yes you know. yeah i mean and, 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 and when did it become so ridiculously polarized where people who read the guardian just literally don't read anything else no that's exactly right i, I had to give a talk to uh, to some people who wanted to be uh journalists yeah and the the the, the thing they asked was what, what should we do and i said if you're on the left read the daily telegraph and the daily mail every day not, yeah. not simply because you want to know what your enemy's thinking but because you might change your mind. Yes. And similarly, if you're on the right, read The Guardian mm. and The Canary. Yeah. You know, open yourselves up to different opinions. Mm. Exactly uh, right. But they, they can't do that, mate. Although, to be honest, under Geordie Gregg, I'm not sure the Daily Mail is in any way, shape or form right-wing anymore. I mean, this is no, the same, no, it's uh, not this all, is the same organisation. They've got all remaining. And also, I was laughing this morning because they've got Harry Maguire on the front page of The Guardian this morning, and I thought they might have to do a little breakout explaining that he was a footballer. Because I can't imagine anyone in the, who reads the Guardian normally would have a clue who he is. No, they don't like football. They don't. They're competing in the African Cup of Nations. Yes, and well, they really, really like them. Well, I was going to say, uh, if, if 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 Harry Maguire uh, was found guilty of aggravated assault uh, and he wasn't white, I wonder whether they'd have put him on the front. Well, no, exactly. That's that's exactly right. It's it's a piece it's you know, they, they, the inside they can use a picture of him in an England shirt and somehow turn it into a political story. But I think we've just lost your line there, Rod. Thanks very much indeed. Rod Little uh, from The Spectator there, of course, uh, columnist as well uh, in The Sunday Times. Always look forward to reading him in The Sun as well. Uh, a man who knows a thing or two also about the BBC. But as he says, you know, at what point did we become so polarised? I mean, I read pretty much everything there is to read in terms of news because that's my job. But, you know, I wouldn't probably do that if I didn't have to. But it really does behoove you to read stuff that you don't agree with in the same way that it behooves you to listen to things that you don't necessarily agree with. I mean, I would love it uh, if I had more people ringing in to disagree with me. I wouldn't have a problem with that because I would see that as a challenge to convince people who are not in agreement with me that at the end of the conversation would be in agreement with me. I mean, I had a conversation on Dan Wooden's show the other week uh, with a woman from the sort of anti-plastic lobby who was trying to convince everyone that they should have paper bags instead of plastic bags in supermarkets. And we actually found a common point of agreement when I said to her, there's not much point in having a paper bag to take home everything which is wrapped in plastic. What's the point of that? And she actually agreed with me.
Now that I call progress. This is Talk Radio. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. The future isn't scary. Not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, uh, it's quite timely that we're going to talk to Neil Oliver now, as we do every Wednesday at this particular time, because patriotism is in the news. Patriotism, apparently, according to uh, some in the media, is a terrible, terrible, awful thing. The usual suspects on the social media, of course, are having a go, uh, accusing anyone and everyone who, who sings Rule Britannia or who enjoys Land of Hope and Glory as some kind of jingoistic nutcase, right-wing demi-fascist. And it's quite ridiculous, because, of course, if you were in Scotland... The complete reverse would be true. Neil, a very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. Now, we'll get back to our conversation about the freedom of speech uh, business because I had a rather long and, and drawn-out argument with somebody on social media about it all on uh, uh, over the weekend. But isn't it weird that in Scotland uh, you're, you're, it's wrong for you not to be nationalistic, whereas in England it seems to be wrong for you to be nationalistic? Yeah, uh... <laughs> I, I, I always seem to, uh, you'd think I was bloody-mindedly trying to be in a cleft stick, but nonetheless, <laughs> just by following my own instincts, yeah. that, that doesn't be what happens to me. Mm. I am I am instinctively uh, opposed to nationalism, uh, it, broad brush. I mean, that, that kind of, my country's better than yeah. your country right. uh, position, I, I'm, I'm wary of, uh, but I am not against uh, love of country. Mm. I am very much a lover of country and I am patriotic in that sense and, and, and my patriotism extends to the whole of the British Isles. Uh, I, I consider myself British uh, and I love the whole place. I, I say this over and over again and I won't back down from it. That I, you know, the welcome that I've had uh, in England, Ireland, Scotland and Wales has, has always been, you know, in, in, in form to me. And I love the place, and, I'm, I, and I, the, the work that I've done, the books I've written, uh, television programmes I've taken part in, I think have been celebratory, where possible, hmm. uh, and, and always alive, wait to the, to the idea that history is a, is a story, a long story of light and shade, and you, you know you, you discuss the good and the bad, and, and you move and you move forward constantly. But underlying it all for me is is love of country, uh, and this this thing about um, rural Britannia and land of hope and glory. I think, especially at the moment, when people are are under so much pressure emotionally and economically with with everything that's been going on with the lockdown and and all of the sort of internecine trouble that's been there, 
And people have lost a great deal. Some people have lost loved ones. Uh, certainly lots of people have lost liberties uh, and they're looking at an uncertain future and losing jobs and all the rest of it. And to take away more from people and, and to contemplate taking away singing, I don't, in my heart, I don't believe many people, if any people, sing, join in with Land of Hope and Glory because they're wanting to celebrate slavery or or, or that kind of uh, angry triumphalism. Mm. It's a it's a it's a rattling good tune and it's great choruses for for both songs. And when you watch, I used to watch it. I've never been in the Royal Albert Hall, but I, I've watched the last night of the proms often, uh, and, and just smiled. You, I don't think you can. If you're open-hearted, I don't think you can do, do but smile when you see people of all ages mm. and from all backgrounds just singing their lungs out. Yeah. And it's, you know, singing is is an expression of joy. And if there's one thing that we need as much as possible at the moment, it's for opportunities to, to people, for people to come t- together joyously. And, and for most, for the vast majority of people who would sing that song at that in that place and time they're just wanting to express joy uh, and and to contemplate taking that away and I, I think if if as a person when you look on at the world and if you look on at individuals and all you see is ugliness and and evil and, and darkness then you have to remember that that's you. Mm. you you are projecting onto the world around you the darkness in your own heart and if, if you think that people are only singing songs and only doing things because of, of an, an ugliness inside, then it's your own ugliness that you're, that you're projecting onto the world there. And just leave people in troubled times to find a bit of joy where yeah. they can. Well, isn't it interesting as well that one of the uh, orders that we are now given uh, is that if you are in a public place and you do find yourself singing, please do not sing too loudly because it might cause a bigger spread of the disease so that you're being asked to kind of sing quietly as almost as if you're ashamed. And you're quite right. I mean, Land of Hope and Glory, in any event, is not actually about a triumphalist kind of world in which we lord over everybody else. It's actually a lot more thoughtful than that if you care to, to, to look into the lyrics. And and it's more like the, the, the last night of the proms has become a tradition in this country um, and it's rather, I, I find, ironic uh, that somebody should start this idea of, uh, of deconstructing it who's from somewhere else. I think we may have... Uh, it's, on, it is, it's, just, it's, it's just depressing, I think, that, that there's this, there's this um, determination, I think, to, to make people ashamed of who they are. Yeah. Uh, and, it, and it's only, or it's increasingly being about, you know, a specific group of people who are just to be demonised for everything, for for everything that they care about, from the from really important things down to to minutiae like songs they want to sing. There is just a, a wave out there, or a seeming intention to make people feel ashamed of of who they are. Mm. And heavens above, we were supposed to be moving as best we could away from from demonizing people on account of the their, their background or the or the or the color of their skin mm. or, or for any other or for religion we were supposed to be trying to get away from that and that there is now a, a, a group that are increasingly just an, an open target for anything that they think say speak or sing is is a is a depressing turn of events uh, and i just feel i feel very strongly that at this time when people have have, have lost so much or have given up so much 
and are waiting with their breaths held for better days, that to choose this time of all times to, to target a song or a couple of songs mm. that when it comes right down to it, they just bring people joy. Yeah. I've never been at the last night of the proms. I, I, I said before, I've, I've looked on at it on the telly and just smiled yeah. and just been amazed, right. really. But still celebrating the joy. You know, how can you look on at people having a fantastic time? You know, it's like Swing Low Sweet Chariot is yeah. another one. You know, you watch the crowd at a rugby match or something sing that. And whether you whether you feel part of that team or part of that nation or whatever, how can anyone look on at that kind of naked joy right. and not at least feel themselves uplifted by it as a as a fellow human being? Right. Exactly right. I mean, I haven't been to last night the proms either. I can tell you, though, that I was once in the Albert Hall uh, to watch Tangerine Dream. Uh, who you might know uh, were a very sort of strange and unusual German sort of instrumental in- instrumental kind of, you know, electronic rock band in the 70s. <laughs> yes. Yes, I have the LP Federer somewhere. By yes, Tangerine. that's the one. And in fact, they had the, the entire stage was covered in sheets and they were kind of playing underneath this kind of collection of sheets and it was not a word was spoken. They didn't interact with the audience at all. They just sat there and played their various keyboards um, and we all kind of just looked on and it was rather a strange experience because it was the complete opposite in a way of last night at the proms. It was a performance that nobody was really enjoying. You know what I mean? Song though, Mike, song is such a primal thing. We share it with the birds for heaven's sake. Mm. You know, it's a, before there was language before as a human species, before we could speak, we were, we were part of the animal kingdom and song is a deep and primal uh, need, uh, you know, and there's a, you know, there's a poem, uh, uh, Paul Lawrence Dunbar, uh, it's called Sympathy, uh, and, and it's better known really as I know why the caged bird sings. You know, Maya Angelou, great writer, yeah. who took that as the title of her autobiographical works. And, and, and it's, you know, the, the, the caged bird sings when his wing is bruised uh, and his bosom sore, it's not a carol of joy or glee, but a prayer that he sends mm. from his heart's deep core. You know, I mean, not too serious about things, but a prayer that he sends from his heart's deep core. You know, we, we feel the need. The caged bird, I mean, so many people emotionally or economically are feeling trapped at the moment. Yeah. Metaphorically speaking, you might see you might say that many people feel caged by circumstances. And at this time, above all others, let's exhort people to sing and to send out a prayer from the heart's deep core and, and, and to find... You know, to, to seek to pick fault with, with lyrics that were written in a bygone age when really all you're dealing with in the case of these songs is a cracking good tune and a chorus that everybody knows the words of, whether mm. they meant it or not, is just a celebration of the human spirit. Yes. And well, I know, I mean, I know, for example, if there's two groups of people, if there's two groups of people, one group singing and the other group shouting at them for singing, I know which group I want to be in. Yes. And it's not, I don't believe, I don't believe that anything like, or it's a tiny minority of people, you can never be sure what's in everyone's heart. Yeah. And some individuals are singing from a, some ancient sense of, I don't know, ill spirit. But for everybody else, it's joy. Mm. And who, want, who wants to compromise the joy of another in something, in something as wholehearted and honest as belting out a tune? Yeah. Well, interestingly enough, you were involved in something earlier on this week in terms of uh, 
uh, hindering the enjoyment of somebody, uh, where you were involved in a bit of a, 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 a Twitter spat with Ian Blackford about Boris Johnson. Boris Johnson, of course, and I mean, I've, I've put the Daily Mail on the plank of the week list this week um, for outing his location when he was on holiday up in Wester Ross. Um, because despite the fact that they said we're not revealing where he is, they published a photograph of where he was, which ended up leading to the fact that he had to leave. And you were basically saying that you were quite embarrassed at the fact that Scotland doesn't now appear to be as a, a welcoming a country as it used to be. I'm, all, I'm, always, in, I'm always in trouble, mate. <laughs> I, I, I'm constantly. If you look at the sort That's what of I like stuff, about you. If you look at the sort of stuff that's surrounding about me on on Twitter and the rest, I'm you know I'm swimming against an, a, an endless torrent yeah. <laughs> of, of, un, of untreated sewage. Uh, but in this in this instance, you know you know the, what I put out there was you know it, it was it was carefully thought. Yeah. And as much as I was saying, there's an impression to be gained from this story, whatever the whatever the, the detail of it, uh, that that someone somewhere was feeling that their best move was to not be in Scotland. Yeah. For want of, you know, consequences real or imagined, uh, and I got, you know, I bring down the usual torrent upon my head for that. But there's no denying that the, the newspapers and media are full of coverage of, of groups standing at the border, uh, overhanging bridges on motorways, uh, holding up banners in in Scotland, saying things like "England out of Scotland," uh, and using much stronger language and and uh, being of the opinion that people from England should be deterred from coming to Scotland and all the rest of it. And it's all it's all based around the, the COVID yeah. uh, pandemic. Of course it is, but nonetheless, there is an atmosphere out there in which of uh, of people being unwelcome, which I just I just feel the obligation to stand up and say that I am that makes me sad. Yeah. I've used sadness again and again in what I've been writing and saying recently. I just feel deeply, deeply sad because when I was when I was growing up, we we celebrated the fact that you know that we we told ourselves that we were a, the most welcoming country. And in many ways, we still are. And I, let me assure you that Scotland is still, you know, full up to the brim with, with welcoming, open-hearted people. Yeah, but there's an undercurrent that is undeniable. And I, I used to love, and I still do, you know, I'd go, to, I'd go abroad, I'd, I'd go anywhere in the UK in the certain knowledge that my accent would, would, be a, would, would draw comment and it, sometimes it would open doors. Yeah. And people were responsive to it in North America and all over Europe and, and, and whatever. And... I just celebrated all of that, and, and I and and I continue to do so. But at the moment, there's no denying that there's there's an element with, within the country that is that is seeking to not welcome uh, people from England. Yeah, uh, that makes me deeply sad because I love England, and in the same way that I love Scotland and Wales and Ireland, uh, I care about these places, and I and I, I've been made welcome in all, and I continue to to, to extend a welcome to everybody else. Yeah. But it well, it's about it's about being basically sort of human, isn't it? I mean, you know, I was watching uh, one of the speeches being made in um, uh, in the United States in Wisconsin yesterday by the sister of the guy who was shot by the cops, who said, you know, we're all human, and it was a very powerful and and, and strong speech that she made. But it's very simple. She just said, you know, don't think of people as anything other than human. That's what we all are. Uh, we're all the same, you know. And if people in Scotland who have that kind of mindset would just think about that. It makes them look actually look ridiculous. You know, what do you mean you're different from me? You're Scottish, you're British, you may not wish to be British, but you are the same. You're a human being. You know, look at me. I have the same DNA as you have. You know, we all have the same, you know, if you cut me, I bleed. If I cut you, you bleed. What's the problem? 
Well, yes, I don't see any way in which a reasoned human being could could argue with that. Mm. Uh, we are we are united by common humanity, uh, and the, you know some of some of what's being said out there. You know, some some groups out there are are, are even seeking to to compromise the integrity of the nuclear family, right. and to say that you know that even even the even the traditional family should be taken apart because it's it's a foundational building block of the of the patriarchy or, mm. or whatever else is supposedly wrong and yet we know for a fact that a, across the world people human beings are united by love of family and by and, and then from family that extends out into your immediate community mm. you know your neighbors hopefully if you're lucky yeah you know if you, you find yourself within a community you know whose company you enjoy and then and it, it goes it goes out from there and it, and it extends out now at which point are you supposed, as a human being, to draw the line and say, "Beyond here, there be dragons"? You know that be, right. beyond here is the enemy. Mm. You, you know you want you want ideally you want ideally for you know to be extending that, that until you see evidence and reason to the contrary. You want to be extending a welcome, and and to look for those things about us that, that by which we are united. And there's simply no denying that in these British islands we are we have this shared history, and it's been. And, and within it, every individual has a different take on it, and has a different family story reflecting whether or not they've they've done well or not, or or been or, or suffered in the past, or and triumphed and come through and persevered and, and all the rest of it. But we share the whole story, and we share this this common humanity. Uh, and and for me, you know, as as a Scot in Scotland, I, I want people, all any, anyone, to feel to feel welcome. Here, you know, to, you know, to come here and know that as long as they abide by the by the laws of the land and that they're respectful of the culture and the traditions here, they would of course be made welcome, and that and that anyone would give uh, any space to to the contrary. I, I just find yeah, find it profoundly sad indeed. Which brings us back to the conversation we had last week about this bill, which is currently uh, going through. Uh, the Scottish Parliament about freedom of speech because I ended up uh, getting a bit of what you would regard as the untreated sewage treatment uh, from Scotland at the weekend. I got into it with some guy about the bill and he ended up saying to me, um, you know, there's nothing new in it because basically um, we already have all these protections against uh, hate speech against various different groups. And I said, well, if that's the case, why is there any need for the bill? And I said, which bits of the of the bill uh, are the new bits? And he then just launched into a tirade of abuse and said, why haven't you read it? Why haven't you? Why don't you know? And all I was doing was actually asking him a question. And people seem to be incredibly triggered uh, by anyone, particularly from England, asking them about this uh, freedom of speech business. Well, yes. Well, well, welcome to welcome to my world. <laughs> welcome to my, to my reality. However, for me, I I I um. I, Pay attention. Like you, you said earlier to one of your your callers just before I, I came on there that you know that you, you you look at things that you don't necessarily agree with because yeah. you really need to be you know across the whole message right. in, properly to form your own opinion. Um, so I'm all, I'm always you know looking for what people are saying about the same subject, mm. and, and the fact that the the proposal for this bill has come under well attacks maybe too strong a word, but lots of learned groups have have aired the opinion that there's trouble ahead here right it's all around the fact that the that's that too much of the wording is vague mm. imprecise i don't think anyone disputes that you want you want people to have protection you don't want groups you know any groups based on color or creed or religion or anything else to be you know to be the targets of of illegal hatred 
Of course you don't. And, and where necessary, there's legislation that protects us from that. But it has to be forensically mm. pinpoint sharp perfect. Yeah. And the groups as diverse as the police, the faculty of advocates, uh, the, you know, the secular society, the Catholic Church here in Scotland are saying, hold on, let's pause and have a, have a look at this because you've created a vagueness here that will only cause trouble ahead. Mm. I, I look on at that as, a, as an interested party and think, well, clearly there's, there's trouble here. And I already know because I am daily, weekly, hourly in receipt of what might be characterized by some people as hate. Right. I, I get all the time from, from all, you know, it's a, it's a, it's been a fact of my life for years now. But you won't be protected from that as an individual, will you? Well, no, but I it's, but we're, we're, according to people, various groups, learned and, and authoritative groups, you're in, you're into territory here where everyone can claim offense about anything. Yeah, right. Potentially in a situation where I can point at you and say you've offended me and everybody else points at me and says I've offended yeah. them because it's vague. Yeah. Well, I, I ended up saying to this guy, because of the way he was describing who this act protected, I said, because he was talking about, you know, any group which is definable by a, 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 a common set of characteristics or something. I said, well, in that case, uh, you would have to protect racists, wouldn't you? And he didn't really have an answer. I said, well, because racists can be a definable group of people. So therefore, you won't be able to make hate speech against racists, will you? Well, well, I mean, hypothetically, yes, because the, because the, I suppose because the wording because the wording is 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 deemed to be vague and imprecise, then there are all sorts of ways in which uh, you know where there's a lack of precision in legal matters. You know, that's where mischief will thrive, uh, and it, it will cut across everyone. It's not as though any one group uh, will, is likely to be is to be the, uh, the, the the victim of of being taken to or, or to be targeted for taking to court for causing offence. It cuts right across. Anyone potentially could accuse anybody or be accused by anyone of having sought to stir up hatred. It's too vague in its terminology, uh, and it, it's it needs to be addressed. Mm. Uh, and yes, I, I'll be. I'm sure I'll be the, the target of it. I can just I can just see if if the bill goes through in its present form, then you know. My, you and I will be in court together. There's, <laughs> there's, nothing, there's nothing surer. No. Um, I will. I will write or say something that, uh, that, uh, that another human being out there can deem it as having been intended to stir up hatred. Uh, and, and away we go. Yeah. I'll be in the wagon. And, and, and as ever, it will be a bonanza yeah. for the lawyers. Luckily, I know a couple of decent lawyers in Glasgow, so I'll, I'll let you know if you need if you need any. Listen, we've got to run. Neil, thank you very much indeed. Neil Oliver, once again, talking a great deal of common sense, uh, presenter of Coast, uh, archaeologist, of course. I call him an historian, even though he doesn't claim to be one, partly because it annoys an awful lot of people that support the Scottish Nationalist Party, because uh, apparently they always tell me, he's not a historian. Well, never mind that. This is Talk Radio. Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now, some of you may be aware, in fact, probably all of you already are aware, uh, that James Whale hasn't been on the air for a while. Uh, he's been resting and recuperating after having some work done uh, at the doctors. Uh, he's been having a bit of a struggle uh, with the cancer that returned to him uh, just a few weeks ago. However, what I can be very, very delighted to say uh, is that James Whale joins me now uh, from his eerie uh, down there in the Garden of England because he's back. He's coming back tonight to talk radio on the air live right here uh, on the home of Common Sense. James, a very good morning to you. 
Good morning to you, Michael, and may I say how marvellously tired you are. I feel slightly underdressed, actually. No, listen, there's no requirement for you to wear a tie while residing uh, in your palace of the people, uh, so that's fine. But it's a very snazzy-looking shirt you've got on, I have to say. Well, yes, you know, one has to try. I was uh, <laughs> I was wearing a T-shirt before, and I thought, well, if it's going to be on video as well, maybe I should just... Uh, listen, there are, there are some people who think it's acceptable uh, to wear T-shirts to work. I'm not one of them, and I'm glad no. to see that you're not either. No. I think one has to try a little harder, don't you? Exactly right. Now, listen, I'm so happy to be able to, to announce to the world that you're back tonight. Uh, how are you feeling, uh, and what are you going to um, be talking about? Well, I'm feeling good, uh, although uh, the boss is very concerned. He doesn't want me to overdo it, so I may only do an hour and a half of the show. See okay. How we go. Uh, I want to talk about all the... I mean, I've been absolutely overwhelmed by all the messages and and, and things that I've had from people, which has just been super. Uh, so I'll talk a bit about that. I haven't... Um, Ash and I have not conversed that much, so right. I'm looking forward to being on with him. Well, I mean, All that's that's a bit of a that's a bit of a godsend, isn't it? Because yeah. I mean, he's one of the most irritating men, as Kevin O'Sullivan has been finding out uh, over the past couple of weeks. One of the most irritating men in Christendom. Well, I've never found him to be that irritating, and I've always found it like a. It's like I've got one of my dogs here. You probably, <laughs> if I move the, whoops, if I move the camera, but you can probably see. Oh yes. Uh, I don't know whether they are. Look, yeah, there's, yeah. There's, oh, there's I move my coffee cup. Very, very nice um, and quiet today. Yeah, yeah. No, she's behaving herself. She's getting ready for this evening, right. which she probably won't be quite as quiet. Um, I, uh, yeah, yeah. I, I don't find him that annoying. In fact, he entertains me quite a lot. Although we wouldn't have worked together for, I don't know, twenty-five years. No. Well, I mean, no. You're, I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, Kevin actually has found out, has he not? Because I think I heard you uh, talking to him about it, saying that basically he is a font of all knowledge, and, and he, he kind he of is. he hides he his is. his uh, yeah. his light under a bushel quite well. Yeah, and when I was getting ill, I didn't realise I was getting ill. Ash was kind of covering for me, but um, I, uh, I I'll, I'll explain what was wrong, or what is wrong with me. Yeah, uh, when we go on, it's terribly sad. I, I hear that Sarah Harding from Girls Aloud has just been diagnosed with cancer as well. It's not yeah. something. It's not something that's that rare, unfortunately. So an old friend of mine used to appear on my TV show in the nineties, Linda Nolan, mm. who's having her own personal battle. So we'll talk to her tonight. Yeah. I don't want anybody being frightened of this it's something that we all you know the more we know the, the better it is the guy who's looking after me professor thomas powells i've got him to come on the show as well because right. he's very keen that people get uh, checked early but i'm not it's not just about that right i am so flipping annoyed over the past couple of that going in and out of london to the hospital yeah the, the amount of 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 just complete and utter vandalism by the mayor of London as to what he's done to the road system. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's it's absolutely appalling. I don't actually understand how it's happened. And the other thing is the BBC. Um, I've been thinking long and hard about this. I've listened to quite a lot of radio while I've not been well. Mm. And I, it, it's time to go. There is no place for the BBC anymore. It, when it was formed, there obviously was a need for it. But now it's just become incredibly left-wing and rather ridiculous. Yeah. And it's the people, unfortunately, inside of it who are destroying it. Because I think we all agree, James, that the BBC as an entity is a wonderful idea. But the trouble yeah. is, it's as though it's been taken over by these ridiculous individuals like this woman, um, you know, Cat Lewis, who apparently calls herself a Christian, but then likens people who, who, who listen to Rule Britannia to neo-Nazis singing about the gas chambers. And you think, what kind of mindset do these people have? 
Well, they all come from university. They all come from a kind of left-wing bias. Yeah. Uh, and uh, they're ruining their local radio network, which should, you know, be doing great things because commercial radio has gone one way. They should go the other way. Yeah. The new head, by the way, of, of uh, BBC Local Radio, who used to read the news on a show I did, but I'll say no more about it than that <laughs> at the moment. Um, apparently, according to uh, my sources, says that what she wants to do is turn... BBC Local Radio into the commercial radio platform of the 80s. Well, it didn't work in the 80s, so right. why would you do that? Well, exactly right. But this is the trouble. You know, they work in this rather sort of um, whited sepulchre, uh, this rather gilded cage where they've never really had to worry about, you know, budgets. They've never had to do the things that you and I have had to do, uh, which mm. is to make sure that you actually have an audience that wants to listen to you rather than just, you know, produce something you don't care whether you listen to it or not. You know, and this idea uh, that somehow they hate Mark Dolan said it very well, I thought, that basically we now know the BBC hates Britain. And that's kind yeah. of where we are. Yeah, I think I think it's time now that we in commercial broadcasting actually said this is they they are, were never set up to be commercial, and they suddenly decided they should be. So why the hell they're trying to chase an audience when I've been told by producers when I've worked at the BBC oh, we're not really interested in getting an audience, James. We just want to be able to do the things that other people don't do. Well, in that case, you do not need Strictly. You do not need EastEnders. Right. You do not need any. Any and Netflix do far better period dramas than any of the stuff I've seen on BBC recently. Yeah, but it's the people. It's not the BBC. I think we ought to have a BBC news channel, which should be completely independent. I think we should probably should have a one TV and one radio channel, which isn't funded by advertising. Yeah. I think we should, and it should be called the BBC and the World Service. We should have. But at the moment, it's the people who go to you who get employed, and I can only assume because when I sent in my um, uh, my letter of interest to become the next director general. I never even got a response. Can you imagine That's that? That's a shocking state of affairs. This I is mean, the thing. And they also, they also, they've become a little bit like some of those rather, I mean, we, we both know there are some great MPs and some not so great MPs, but oh. these are now, the BBC people are like those MPs who don't give a stuff about their constituents, who don't understand that we actually pay their wages and they don't understand they actually have to do what we want them to do because they work for us. The other thing I've always found, and I've worked occasionally for the BBC, as you know, I'm sure you have, is that the people who run it, the ones, you know, in the, uh, you mentioned a couple of names, I could mention more, but I don't think I will at the moment. Mm. Um, they all have this idea that they are in some way superior to the people who watch and listen. Yes. They think that they know better. Mm. I said to one one day, who obviously had come out of university, and, and I said, why are we doing this? And they said, well, because this is what the people expect. I said, well, what are you talking? And I could not actually get through to the person that it had absolutely nothing to do mm. with communication, right. which seems to have passed them by. Yes. But this is the problem as well, I think, with the journalism at the BBC, because the journalists are all uh, ex-sort of university types. They've never done what I would call the basics of journalism, which is to walk around um, the high street of your local town, uh, to go into shops, talk to people, go to the local magistrate's court, see yeah. who's up for, you know, the various different small misdemeanours and people get, again, pulled in for shoplifting. Real stories, real human beings, real people. They don't know any of them. They only know the sort of dinner party set. We don't need it, Michael. We don't need it at all because we have talk radio. Yes. Talk radio, probably the greatest rate. And some, unfortunately, some other uh, radio stations are beginning to try to emulate the BBC. Yes. Why would you do that? Mm. 
Well, do you know, some of them, rather unwisely, are trying to emulate what you and I do, and they're not very good at it, and they get no. themselves into all sorts of trouble. And we won't tell you exactly who we're talking about there, but you know well, what no, I mean. Well, I do, but you and I have been in trouble as well. But there is a fine line to walk, because people deserve to, to be able to make opinions. Um, and as long as you've got a phone, and your listener can call in, mm. and they can go on the line, as long as they expect to be challenged, because we can't all expect to say whatever we want no. and be challenged. In fact, there'd be no fun if we weren't challenged, would there, really? Well, exactly. Exactly right. So, you know, I, listen, I, I, I listened to your interview with Dan Wooten, and you were saying earlier that, you know, the whole thing about, uh, just to take you back to the, to the, to the cancer conversation, yeah. I was so impressed with the way that you spoke. Um, I've known you a long time, James, as you know, um, and I keep meaning to, to pop in and see you, and we're going to do that. Denny and I are going to come down at some point. Good, because I'm waiting. Yeah, I'm, uh, not, yeah I'm, I'm really upset you haven't been. I know, I know. Well, I'm upset as well. Well, we were hoping to do it a couple of weeks ago, but it didn't work out. Yeah. But anyway, um, but you're so, I mean, you're so much out there in terms of, you know, as you say, not hiding from it, you know, per perfectly admitting that, you know, everybody's got problems, everybody has things to deal with. And it's true. You know, you've got this particular problem to, to beat. I've got no doubt that you will. Um, we've all got, you know, things going on in our lives that, that, we, that lots of other people don't know anything about, um, which might not be, you know, terribly uh, disease-like, but, but are still terrible, you know? And, and I think what you do, and I listen to your show religiously when you're on because I find it uplifting. I like to cook during, during the time when you're on because it seems to be, it seems to, so I'm drinking, I'm cooking, I'm listening to you. And, you know, I love it. I've, I've learned a lot from you just from listening to you. Well, you know that that's really sweet, and um, to use that's a bit of a lovely expression. Really sweet. I know. Sorry. <laughs> I, 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 I have I've done this and enjoyed it. I absolutely. I was sitting here last night thinking, oh, why don't I say I could go on the air? And I, I just I like being on the air. I like yeah. talking. I like discussing. I like arguing because there are so many things that I think I see that you know people are getting away with now. We've changed society in to a society that wants the losers. This is this is a little bit over, you know. You need to dig into this, but but those people who weren't very good at stuff now seem to be running it, yes. and there's no danger. When did you last hear of a kid climbing a tree? Mm. Uh, we brought our children up to be kind of bored and dull in many ways, yeah. a lot of them. Um, and and so, I mean, I know it all goes in circles, but it's it's beginning to change again. I'm I'm hoping I just live long enough for it yes. to change back but you can't listen i've got cancer and uh lots of other people have got cancer as well uh one day there'll be a cure for it um it is getting closer every day we speak there are new uh things that can happen uh the problem is that most people cancer doesn't hurt until it's too late by the mm. way and that is a problem so nobody really knows they have it until quite often it's too late right so little bumps and lumps and little twinges here and there you need to always get checked out. And I'm the world's worst. World's worst, I should know. But I think with lockdown, I knew I was looking strange, to say the least. Yeah. Um, and uh, we're going to talk a bit about that tonight on the programme. I don't want to hear anybody calling it the big C. The word is cancer. It's right. a disease. We have to come to terms with it, live with it. There are many other diseases around as well. Um, but everybody, everyone, unless you are incredibly lucky, and you'll know this as well, have problems in their lives. Sure. And if you don't have a problem at the moment, that's great, and I'm very happy. But we all, all of us, 
all of us have problems in our lives we have to contend with. Yeah, exactly right. And you don't get rid of the problems by running away from them. You have to no. face them. And that's what you're doing. Final question to you, James. What's it like where you are at the moment in terms of the old, uh, you know, people going out, walking the streets? I mean, in, in my part of Sussex, uh, there's, it's quite busy. People are out on a Saturday shopping and doing all the usual things. London is still a ghost town, as you probably know. Um, yeah. What's it like where you are? Fine. Um, it's, it's, uh, look, I, let's not, um, play down the virus, but it, it, you know, perhaps we should all learn to be a little more clean than we were washing hands regularly, stuff mm. like that. Uh, um, and it's a tragedy that people have caught this and died from it, but the amount of people who die from it is quite small. Yeah. And I think we need to bear that in mind. And I'm not sure whether the world has gone completely mad with the overkill for this or not. I don't know. We'll see in time. But I have not noticed that, you know, you put a mask on to go into a shop, fine. Unless you forget it like I didn't have to pull your T-shirt up over your nose. <laughs> I just, I, um, um, and it's just, it, it's ridiculous. But I haven't seen that many people worrying the high street in a little village near where i live just a couple of miles down the road uh i was there yesterday my son came took me down there to do a bit of shopping and uh, people were just getting on with their business yeah. just getting on and uh trying to get back i've never heard so much rubbish as i've heard from the flipping teachers union oh god no and, uh, you know and the and a lot of parents you know your kids are going to be much much more damaged if you never send them to school than if you send them to school i know it's absolutely bonkers. Crazy. Well, I'm sure you'll talk about that as well. Listen, James, great to see you. Great to have you back. Fantastic news that uh, uh, that you're on tonight. Uh, and I shall be listening for one at seven o'clock. So at least you'll know that there'll be somebody out there. <laughs> what are you going to make? And uh, you know, Tonight, do you know what I'm going to make tonight? I've got some pork escalops, right? I'm going to put them right. in uh, some honey mustard um, uh, sort of marinade. And yeah. uh, I'm going to fry them up and have them with couscous. Do you know what I had the other day very quickly if you've got time? Go on. I've got a pork chop left to cook. I, I, I put it in the pan. I cooked this pork chop. I thought, that looks nice. I put some broccoli in the pan. I thought, I need something to go with it. I've got some blueberries in the fridge. I put them in with a little really? olive oil. Yeah, because you need something to cut through the greasiness of the pork, right. don't you, really? Okay. Uh, and I didn't fancy apples. So I put blueberries in, a little white wine, a little olive oil, and then a, a little chili. Nice. And um, when I'd cooked the, the, the pork, I brought it out. I put a knob of butter in, made a very nice sauce. Sounds good. Sounds ideal. I had no idea you were such maybe a we good cooking show. We year. should. Yeah, listen, well, I do a podcast called MG's Kitchen, which we're going yeah. to maybe turn into a video thing. So we'll do it. We'll definitely yeah. do it. That's a date. James Whale, back tonight on Talk Radio, where he belongs, seven o'clock. Be there uh, and you will hear the great man talking about a great many things. James, great to see you. Thank you very much indeed. This is Talk Radio. Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now, do you know how many cups of tea have been consumed in the United Kingdom so far today? This is 12.30 in the afternoon. You will be quite staggered, as I am by this figure. 44,046,426 which is quite a lot of fours and sixes, to be honest, which is quite interesting in, in and of itself. But 44 million cups of tea. I've had two of them um, so far this morning. We're going to be talking now about tea because it's time for homeschooling. This is what we do every day at 12.30. So as you are getting ready to send your children back to school, I think it's a perfect time uh, to consider thinking about the homeschooling section. And once again, if you've been not listening to it for a while because you thought your kids were on holiday, 
we'll get back into it because one thing we know uh, is that we will need the children to be more disciplined than they have been probably for the last six months because they're going to be going back to school. Uh, if you're in Scotland, of course, they're back at school already. Uh, but we're going to talk now uh, to our favourite Rare tea expert, Henrietta Lovell, uh, who's joining us for homeschooling. Get your kids uh, around the television if you're watching us on YouTube or get them listening uh, to the radio or the Alexa or the smart speaker, whatever it is that you're doing. Um, and let's talk about tea. Um, very good afternoon to you, Henrietta. Good afternoon, Mike. Thank Lovely you. to see you. Yes, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Now, tea is one of those great fantastic things, isn't it? Because there's so much you can do with it. There's so many interesting places where you can get it from. Um, everybody takes it differently. Everybody has a different sort of taste in, in the tea that they have. I see you're drinking some tea at the moment. What sort of tea are you drinking right now? I'm drinking a green tea. But um, I think sometimes we get very um, caught up in in what kind of tea one person likes and mm. one person doesn't like. Tea is delicious. Whatever tea you like is the right tea. Yes. I'm not here to tell you that you should drink green or black or oolong. Yeah, my mother loves green tea, but I, I can't get on with it at all. It's not it's not really for me. I don't mind drinking tea without milk. I don't mind drinking jasmine tea. I don't mind drinking, you know, even peppermint tea I've had. But I don't somehow green tea doesn't quite do it for me. Well, sometimes we try one kind of wine. Like, just say I gave you, never had wine before, and I gave you a not particularly good industrial bottle of uh, white wine. And yeah. you tried it, and you're like, I don't really like it. Mm. But then I found this beautiful wine from a single vineyard where they crafted it beautifully and they'd made something extraordinary. And you try and look, actually, I pretty much do like white wine. And it can mm. be a lot like that with green tea. Right. You know, sometimes you get an industrial bag that's made by a vast machine. There's no love and craft in it. And it's a bit bitter and not particularly nice. Yes. Or you have something that's been lovingly handmade by people who are really trying to get the best out of the leaf to make extraordinary flavour. Yeah. And, like, green tea has been drunk for about 5,000 years. And wow. in China, they're good at making it. And you can get some really delicious ones. So you can't really... It's maybe wise not to rule out all green tea okay. for bad luck. Well, I shall persevere in that case, and I shall, I shall poke about and see if I can find some that I might... Maybe I'll send you some. Oh, OK, why don't you do that? And we'll, I'll, I'll drink some I'll on air. And... I'll drink some on air. And if I manage to do it without spitting it out, then uh, that'll be a great success. What about um, how fresh it needs to be? Does it need to be... Because, I mean, we all, we all sort of... I mean, I'm unfortunately, we, we sometimes drink tea out of tea bags because that happens to be the easiest way to do it if you're in a work situation quite often, particularly at the moment, where it's quite a struggle to even find a proper cup rather than one made of paper. Um, does it matter when you're drinking things like green tea how fresh it actually is? Well, it used to because we used to be shipping tea on a boat in a wooden case. Yes. And it's not really that airtight, funnily enough. And sometimes those cases would be lined with lead to keep them safe, oh, really? to keep it airtight. And so you've got lead poisoning. Right. Nowadays, we can vacuum pack, we can pack into sealed uh, foils. So you've got quite a good longevity to your tea. And also we can ship it much quicker. Uh -huh. We're not waiting for that slow boat from China. Right. And most but, of it is... Know, sorry, I was going to say, most of it still comes, does it not, from China and India? Well, it's funny, actually. China has been making tea for the longest time so originally all the tea in the world came from china yeah all of it there was no tea from anywhere else they had a monopoly on tea in about the fifth century they shared it with japan but for all intents and purposes all the tea we got and we started getting tea in the middle of the 16th century 17th century sorry 1600 17th century yeah. we started to import tea from there and it was all coming from china but after the second world war and 
the revolution in China, there was a breakdown in international trade and China stopped exporting. And we had already stolen the tea bush by then from China. Yeah. British, uh, a man called Robert Fortune, he managed to break his way into China, which was forbidden to take the tea out as anything but finished. Mm. So no plants, no seeds. But he managed to get hold of some. And he hid it in bamboo canes so that he'd get little seedlings inside and took those to what were then British colonies in India and started to grow tea. And then it was quite a patriotic thing in the 19th century, sorry, 19th century, to buy British tea, Mm. tea from the colonies. And we started to get a real taste for different kinds of tea. So normal tea back in the day was green and oolong. And then it became black tea. So that's quite a modern thing. And we started to drink a lot of tea from India, Sri Lanka. And now about 90% of the tea we drink is coming from uh, what were former British colonies um, or parts of the world that are not China. So East Africa, India, Sri Lanka. Interesting. And And presumably that's because of the climate in the south part of India where they grow the tea. It's because it's so hot there. Yeah, it's a brilliant. You need a terroir for tea. Like, you know, wine only grows in certain places. Mm. You can't grow a grapevine everywhere. It's the same with tea. Everything you know about wine growing is sort of true of tea growing. You need the right kind of conditions, the right uh, altitudes and um, the right soil structure. And India, Sri Lanka, Nepal are great areas, but also East Africa. I think yeah. that's often overlooked. Yes. A lot of the tea, maybe a third of the tea we're drinking is coming from Kenya, Malawi, places like that. Okay. And because it's we interesting as well. I was going to say, in India, I mean, when I went to India, I've only been once, but when I went to India, you sort of got the impression that they'd been drinking tea forever. But it sounds as though it's relatively new to them. No. So about 1850 is yeah. when it's produced tea. And there was no tea really in India before that. Not that it was drunk as we know it, but it's so funny because the British botanists, first of all, British people had to go and steal the tea, not our finest hour. Um, but they were looking around for places to grow it. And then after all this burden and troubles and them, and there were wars fought over tea, mm. um, they found there was tea in Assam. So there was a tea plant. There's two varietals. So there's one main plant, which is called Camellia sinensis. And all tea tea comes from that. Now, you mentioned earlier peppermint. Mm. That's not actually a tea. That's a herb. But we call it tea to put it in hot water. Ah, okay. But like, White tea, green tea, oolong tea, black tea, those are Camellia sinensis. Okay. And then we, we have one leaf. We process it different ways to get different things. So you process it differently to get white, green, just like making white wine or red wine comes from grapes. Oh, my God. Mike, I just lost where I was. Oh, so <laughs> no, don't worry. No, don't worry. Listen, I've got plenty of questions for you, so I'll, I'll, I'll hit you with another one. Um, People talk about caffeine in tea, and I've heard different stories of how it's got almost as much caffeine as coffee, or it hasn't got as much caffeine as coffee. What's the truth? All tea has caffeine, so it's a myth that green tea doesn't have caffeine, so it's all the same plant processed differently, so that's really important. I don't know how that myth got uh, started, but anyway. Anything that's made from Camellia sinensis has caffeine. The herbs don't, so if you want something without uh, caffeine, go for peppermint or lemongrass or... Uh, rooibos but it does have a, a high level of caffeine the thing is we don't actually drink the tea leaf like we do with coffee coffee mm. you're drinking a lot of grounds you're drinking an infusion of the leaf yes so it's probably about a third less than caffeine but the look coffee but the lovely thing is it stays in your bloodstream longer so with coffee you take a ship hit of coffee and then you drop back down right so you get these kind of anxiety levels and i don't know about you but right now 
in this current world, I feel quite a lot of exhaustion. <laughs> so I'm quite glad of my tea because it, take, it takes you up here, not quite as high as coffee, but here, and it stays in your yes. bloodstream. So it keeps you going for longer. And if you have a really good leaf tea, so the problem with a bag is it sort of gives it all up straight away. Yeah. Not one infusion. But if you get a beautiful leaf tea, something, you know, that's made um, from a real leaf, this is made by someone for craft rather than a machine for quick, um, right. cheap. You can get several infusions out of it. So you can drink it the same leaf two or three times, just the way your mother, your grandmother, yeah. your great grandmother always did. And, and, and then you're going to keep the same, you're going to keep the caffeine in your system, but just a little bit less each time. So you're going to stay on this lovely, long, mm. gentle caffeine high. And so what's your preferred method of making tea? Is it in a pot or do you get one of those little infusion balls that you can no. you know you can put the tea well, in it's a dried herb right and so as it hits water it unfurls and infuses better with much more space mm. but one thing you did mention about tea bags and them being very quick and easy actually a lot of people use a cafetiere for coffee that's based on a teapot yeah a teapot is five thousand year old technology it's pretty easy to use you just put some tea in a pot and then strain it off yeah if you use a tea bag if you take a tree and turn it into paper, that doesn't happen by magic, right? You need certain things, industrial chemicals, yeah. bleaches, glues, nanoplastics, all kinds of stuff, which doesn't just disappear. It's going to go into your tea and yeah. it's not sustainable. You take a tree for a single use and then you throw it away. Mm. And the ones that are made out of the kind of, you know, the ones they call silken, um, that they're plastics. Mm. And whether they're made of corn or of uh, oil, it's still... You know, it's still a process, use. yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so you're better off getting nothing else in your body and not using any resources, just using a teapot yeah. if you can. That's how I like it. One of the greatest uh, tricks, if it's if it's a trick that I was ever taught, uh, was that uh, when you make tea in a pot, if you uh, when you're ready to just before you're about to pour it, uh, if you if you stir it slightly uh, with a with a spoon gently, and then tap the side of the teapot, all the leaves fall to the bottom. And you can pour yeah. out the tea without any leaves, without a strainer. Yeah, it's a brilliant one. Isn't and it? also, if you pour all the water from the pot, so you call, they, in China they call the last drop the golden drop, mm. it will stop infusing. So imagine you're making, you're having a steak, and a, a very famous chef has cooked it for you, and he's it's been reared, the cow has been reared on acorns, and has its little head stroked, and it's been killed very humanely and hung the right amount of time, and then the steak has been cut by a brilliant butcher. And then the chef has asked you, how do you like it? You say, medium rare, rare? Right, I say medium, medium rare. rare usually. Medium rare. And he cooks it for you perfectly. And then he cuts it in half and he gives you your first half. And you're like, oh, this is amazing. Thank you so much. Best steak I've ever had. And then he comes with the second half that's been sitting in the frying pan the whole time. And unfortunately, that's turned to leather. It's been cooking. Yeah. So it's not so great. Now, the same thing, if you get a beautiful tea and you leave it in hot water, it will continue to cook, to infuse. Mm. And all the tannins, the bitter flavors that let your mouth dry, will be leaching out of the tea and making it not so nice. Right. So if you pour all the water off, you stop the infusion, and then you can go and have another infusion, another infusion by putting fresh water on that same leaf. And each time you'll get a new infusion and it won't be bitter, it'll just be more delicious. Uh -huh. So. Never leave your tea steeping in water after the point where you've got it the way you like it. Okay. And and is it true that it tastes better out of a china cup than it does out of, say, a mug? Well, you know, if, you, if I gave you a glass of really good wine and I gave it to you in a plastic tooth mug, 
you might not enjoy it as much as if you drank it out of a fine lip glass. No, that's true. And I think there's something about the ritual, something taking something that you think is beautiful, that mm. feels nice next to your mouth, that feels nice in your hand, that doesn't have any aromas. And bone china is a pretty good thing for that. Yes. And do you have a favourite type of tea or a favourite flavour of tea? So I have the huge privilege in the old world of travelling around the world to visit farms and to choose How do you get a job like that? That's a great job. Well, I set up the business so I could do it. Right. I'm not sure which came first. <laughs> so I go to China, India, Japan, East wow. Africa, all over. And I work with farmers. Because here's a really interesting fact. 90% of the tea that we have in Europe and North America comes from seven companies. Wow. And life expectancy in India or East Africa, where most of our tea comes from, very rarely gets above 50. Mm. So people live in poverty, what we would think of as unacceptable poverty, yeah. to support the tea industry, which makes some very large agribusinesses very rich and their shareholders. But the farmers and the people of the tea communities live in what we would consider real poverty. Mm. And they consider real poverty. So I tried to do things a bit differently by working directly with the farms, paying them what they ask rather than a commodity price yeah. from a market and selling something better like you would wine. You know, like we buy wine or cheese or olive oil or many things for their value. Yeah. I think, oh, I'll buy a little bit better and then a better price goes to the farmer and it's a bit virtuous circle. I get a better flavor. And it's the same with tea. Yeah. You get a beautiful flavor from something that's made by somebody for craft they get a better price and we're only talking about a few pence more per cup okay so where so, do we where do we find this tea that you bring back then well i have a company called rare tea company okay. and you can buy it online and we ship everywhere but if it's not buying from me do buy from somebody who has a relationship with the farmer so do they know where it comes from do they know those people do they have do they know that community because it's very hard to rip off somebody you know yeah. It's not to have an exploitative relationship. But if you know them and you're trying to support and foster a great relationship, and it's also a sound business sense because you're supporting your supply. You know, I want brilliant tea crafts to survive, so I need a sustainable relationship with them economically, environmentally, yeah. and socially. Yes. Well, it sounds wonderful. Henry, it's so uh, fascinating to talk to you. Thank you so much. And um, I shall be having another cup of tea probably later on today. Um, once I get home and thank you I shall think about it a lot more now um, and I shall go and find some some fine teas uh, to buy thank you very much indeed Henrietta Lovell there uh, rare tea expert what a great job uh, who is the largest producer of tea in the world uh, it's China uh, second is India then Kenya which I didn't really know much about what percentage of British tea is consumed from a tea bag 96% so you're all doing it wrong basically this is Talk Radio Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB, online, or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. 
Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Are you ready for truly hydrated skin? Meet Hyaluronic Body Serum, a breakthrough in body care from Osea. It's clinically proven to instantly increase hydration by 161%. Their lightweight, fast-absorbing serum delivers 24 hours of nonstop hydration for silky smooth skin without the sticky afterfeel. Osea's latest innovation combines the magic of their best-selling Hyaluronic Sea Serum with a new formula that's good for the whole body and five types of hyaluronic acid to target every layer of the skin. Osea is a women-founded, women-led brand that's been crafting seaweed-powered products for nearly 30 years. The best part? Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code SUMMER.